Hello and welcome to First Time. I sit in my room and talk into a microphone. My name is Noemi and I am completely obsessed with Antarctic explorers. I studied environmental history for my bachelor's degree. There basically every paper I wrote was about Ernest Shackleton and my love for him. And which basically has prepared me for this and only this. actually the second time I'm sitting in my room recording this episode. When I started this podcast a year ago, it was very much a pilot project. I wanted to find out if anybody was even interested, if I had the time and the energy for it, and in general if podcasting was really for me. And I absolutely loved it, but I had just started out as a freelance author and journalist and was asked to work on some investigative research projects that left me with little time to do any passion projects on the side. It has been an intense year, as anybody who follows me on Instagram will know. Listening back to those first episodes, I realized that I talk way too fast in them. I'm not happy with some of the sound effects either, and I figured that if I'm trying again, I might as well pull a Taylor Swift on them. So I've re-recorded and re-edited the first two episodes. of my podcast where I talk to you bluntly about all things Antarctic exploration. I'm going to talk about how completely bananas some of these things are. For example, how Shackleton, my love always, decided to cross the entire fucking continent through the South Pole, despite having failed to reach the pole in previous attempts. But sure, crossing an entire continent seems doable. I'm going to talk about the gross stuff those men used to eat on their journeys, I'm going to talk about penguins, and let's be real, I am going to talk about penguins a lot, okay? I'm going to focus mainly on the so-called heroic age of Antarctic exploration. This is a time period that lasted roughly from the late 19th century to the mid-1920s. It's just the funnest period to explore, no pun intended, but there you have it, because everything was new to the explorers and they were essentially just living the adventurous dreams. Because of the climate crisis, there's a lot happening in Antarctica right now and I will segue to the 21st century every now and again. I will also do my best to get guests on the pod. I want to talk to real living Antarctic explorers. I will also talk about the cultures surrounding Antarctica, like literature, movies and the Ernest Shackleton musical. Yes, there is a musical. And so, welcome to Fantarctica. Sing to me, muse, of the men who smashed those icebergs in pursuit of a mysterious southern continent. Where better to start this first episode than where it all began? The story of Antarctica and its discovery starts as so many stories do, in ancient Greece. Ancient philosophers guessed that there was a very cold and probably very big piece of land all the way in the south. The reason for that guess was that the Arctic region was actually already fairly well known at the time. So the philosophers assumed to balance this out, there had to be something similar on the other side of the world. They called the Arctic Arctos, which means bear in ancient Greek and refers to the constellation in the northern sky, and they titled the region on the opposite end of the world, Antarctos. 
So the Greek already assumed that the Antarctic would be equally frigid and uninhabitable as most of the Arctic. But that theory was dismissed during the Middle Ages, when people instead started telling stories of a very green and pleasant piece of land that lay far away in the south. They thought it was even inhabited by people and that it was probably super warm because it's in the south. And considering that they really had no fucking clue, they might as well imagine Antarctica as a lovely green paradise with hammocks and margaritas and white beaches all around. I'm just assuming that's how the stories went. But yeah, those boys and the occasional women were in for a bit of a surprise when they finally ventured south. is essentially the blue whale of land masses. It's bigger than Australia and out of all the seven continents it is the most inaccessible. Antarctica is also the coldest, driest, windiest and highest in average elevation. In short, it's not exactly the type of place that serves in margaritas. In fact, before the explorers arrived, no human had ever even set foot on its land. For much of Antarctica's history, the part that was visited the most was the peninsula region. If you look at a map of Antarctica, you'll see straight away which area I mean, the peninsula region basically lies south of the Antarctic Convergence, also called the Antarctic Polar Front. The Antarctic Convergence is an ecological boundary in the Southern Ocean, where cold surface waters that flow north from the Antarctic continent meet and drop below the warmer, saltier waters that come from the subtropics. And yes, every time the Southern Sea is mentioned, I am thinking of Hands of the Southern Isles from Frozen. Love is an open door. Anyway. This convergence, convergence. <laughs> this convergence follows a track around the circumference of the South Polar regions. It is between 30 and 50 kilometers wide and lies at a latitude of about 48 degrees and 62 degrees south. Because of all that, there can be abrupt changes in the water and the air temperature. Climate in this region depends extremely on whether an island lies south or north of this band. Even further south of the convergence line lies the Antarctic Circle. This is an imaginary line at 66 degrees and 33 minutes south. Every year the sun doesn't rise for one day in the winter and doesn't set for one day in the summer. A significant portion of Antarctica's peninsular region is north of this latitude. That means the climate there is milder than in other places in Antarctica. In summer the temperatures are above freezing and even in the middle of winter the sun rises for a few hours every day. Don't get me wrong though, it's still not a very chill place. The vegetation is really scarce and there are no land animals except for minute insects. Not to mention that the entire land is blanketed by ice. The first documented voyage south happened in 1502, when a Portuguese ship claimed to have reached 50 degrees south along the east coast of South America. For the people back home, this just eradicated all doubt that there really was a large landmass on the west side of the Antarctic Ocean. One of the first explorers into the south was Ferdinand Magellan, a Portuguese mariner. He actually reached 52 degrees south. He discovered a strait into the Pacific Ocean. In fact, he named it the Pacific Ocean because it seemed so peaceful when he was there. Magellan's journey proved that the southernmost part of the world could only be reached by sea. Now during that time quite a lot of exploring is happening. Columbus is discovering America, new plants and animals are introduced to Europe, the world just becomes bigger and more wonderful with every ship that returns back home. So in 1577 England entered the picture. 
with a merchant called Francis Drake. He was sent by the Queen herself to explore and set up trade in the region and claim any land that was, quote, not in possession of any Christian prince. Drake reached 56 degrees south and thus proved that any southern landmass had to be in higher latitudes than Tierra del Fuego and Chile, which had hitherto often been considered to be part of Antarctica. It took Drake only 16 days to reach the Pacific from the Patagonian coast. No one had ever made such short passage through Magellan Strait. From then on though, Drake was continuously battling violent winds. He drifted off route and discovered that there was open sea beyond Tierra del Fuego. This big stretch of ocean is now called the Drake Passage. So in trying to find Antarctica, people advanced very slowly. But even as the 17th century came to a close, people kept believing in the tale of lush green land on the other side of the world with its hammocks and margaritas. Alright, that's just my fantasy. But favorite theories die hard is what I'm trying to tell you. So the year is now 1675 and the guy is Anthony de la Rochelle, half French, half British, and he actually makes some progress. He lands on the island of South Georgia and thus crosses the Antarctic Convergence. No one has ever done that before. But Anthony doesn't explore. He stays on the island for 14 days, then heads back home. This is a major, major event in Antarctic history, okay? And also, and most importantly, if you ask me, Anthony de la Rochelle gave us the first ever description of a penguin. He calls them strange birds which could not fly at all. In body they are less than a goose and bigger than a mallard, short and thick set together, having no feathers, but instead a certain hard and matted down. Their feeding and provision to live on is in the sea, where they swim in such sort as nature may seem to have granted them no small prerogative in swiftness. After Anthony de la Roche left South Georgia, no one would set foot on the island for another 80 years. In 1773, James Cook, who you might know as your travel agent these days, was the first to cross the Antarctic Circle. He had made advantage of two recent developments. First of all, he used new marine chronometers. And second, and this is a bit of a tongue twister, he made sure his crew wasn't screwed by scurvy. Try saying that ten times in a row. Also, his ships were ever so poetically called Resolution and Adventure, which I think are awesome names. Cook did the first ever circumnavigation of the Antarctic regions. He didn't actually reach the Antarctic continent, but at least its possible limits were now set. If a continent did exist, it had to be south of 60 degrees south. Cook also finally told the world that everything there was covered in ice with no hammocks or margaritas. So, you know, completely worthless to pursue. <laughs> Cook also mentioned a lot of wildlife. So pretty much as soon as he returned home and told the British public about the whales and the seals he had seen, hundreds of merchants ventured south. In the early 1770s, New England whalers arrived on the Falkland Islands and they quickly found something even better than whales, elephant seals. An adult male elephant seal weighs up to four tons and they're essentially just made of blubber. The seals up to that point had had no natural predators on land, so they had no reason to fear the men. So often Brits and Americans just went mad for some elephant seal oil and they went and killed more than a million and two hundred thousand seals in South Georgia. 
chat. In doing so, the Cedars actually discovered quite a few Antarctic islands, but they didn't care so much about claiming them. The priority of being the first to discover something was completely lost on them. They were here for the slaughter. They killed all the female seals first, which meant that in turn the pups were dying of starvation. So it was really bad from an environmental point of view as well as from an economical perspective. The Cedars had to move further and further south because by the early 1820s they had driven the animal populations to near extinction. And that's why we assume that in 1821 Cedars were probably the first people to have set foot on the Antarctic continent. <coughs> While the cedars and whalers didn't care so much about Antarctica, merchants in Europe very much did. Meet Fabian Gottlieb von Bellinghausen, a Russian who was sent south by his government because Russia was in dire need for a supply route to its far eastern territories. And so on January 27, 1820, Bellinghausen almost certainly saw the coast of East Antarctica at 69 degrees south and 2 degrees west. Bellinghausen never actually claimed to have seen land there because the strangeness of the land confused Bellinghausen and his crew. They thought it might as well be an illusion. But what he described later on was pretty much exactly what the area really looks like. Bellinghausen spent two weeks south of the Antarctic Circle and was the second person to circumnavigate Antarctica. He wrote a massive account about his journey too, but unfortunately that did not reach the non-Russian speaking world until 1902. And by then Russia had just kind of lost interest in the south. By 1823, many ship owners had given up their sealing businesses, except for one, James Weddell. James Weddell was one of only a few sealing captains who actually still made any money in the season of 1821 and 1822. He traveled south again, but he found no seals because they were all dead, so he just went and did some exploring. He spent some weeks zigzagging from north to south to north and back south again, then headed into some previously unexplored waters and found himself in the heart of what we now call the Weddell Sea. The Weddell Sea is a essentially a large embayment in the Antarctic continent, east of the Antarctic Peninsula and south of the Atlantic Ocean. The Weddell Sea is often clogged with dense pack ice, which is why this area is one of the least travel places in Antarctica. But James Weddell just got to enjoy this rare year in which the sea just opened up for him. And on February 20th, 1823, he reached the farthest south by over 200 miles or about 322 kilometers. In the 1830s, three expeditions from Great Britain, the US and France traveled south and they were all representative of a growing sense of nationhood and power that had been sweeping over many countries. Science is rapidly growing and scientists wanted to be the first to make new discoveries. And you have to imagine, by that point, much of the world was known but on the map, there was still this big question mark where Antarctica was. So all these expeditions contributed to the first charting of Antarctica. James Clark Ross from Great Britain estimated the latitudes of the greatest auroral activity and they were so accurate that they're still in use today. <laughs> also his ships were called Erebus and Terror. How epic is that? And yes, they sank later on in the Arctic, but still. 
epic names. After that, interest in Antarctica faded a bit. Only six ships sailed south of the Antarctic Circle between 1844 and 1893, but science quietly kept at it. There was an International Polar Conference in 1879, the first International Polar Year happened in 1882, and by that time most of the sub-Antarctic islands and part of the Antarctic Peninsula had been discovered. Antarctica was, and I think this is fair, seen as a strange place, as cold and desolate and a bit disenchanting. No margaritas, is all I'm saying. The interest in polar regions sort of shifted north then into the Arctic, where people were keen to find the Northwest Passage. At the same time, though, many countries had colonies in Africa and Australia, and they wanted to expand that. In the summer of 1895, the Sixth International Geographical Congress happened in London, and two sessions dealt with Antarctica, and that is how the heroic age of Antarctic exploration begins. Here it is, the beginning of everything. It will only get crazier from here. Thanks so much for listening to this inaugural episode of Fantartica. My name is Noemi and you can find this podcast on Instagram under at Fantartica. I'm going to create a website for this podcast eventually, so stay tuned for that. Until then, you can find all episodes on my website www.noemiharnickel.com forward slash Fantartica. All the information will be listed in the description box as well. In the meantime, if you liked this, you can head on over to iTunes to rate and review because all the other podcasts I listen to tend to emphasize how much that helps, so I'm just going to trust them on that. The next episode will be up soon and until then, thank you so much for listening and goodbye!